uh, there is no vehicle charging in my city, in New York City, in, in 2020 at least, that wasn't immediately accessible for me. The way you could charge a vehicle was that you would rent a spot in a private garage or in a private parking lot, which was a premium. So you would pay, you know, I'm not joking, around $800 a month for that spot. And then you'd have to pay for the premium of parking in the spot that had the EV charger. And then you have to pay for the energy of that charger on top of everything else. So I like, wow, that's a wealth barrier, right? Only the wealthy are going to drive electric vehicles. Only the wealthy would have the spare capital to engage in a routine like that. Well, this is silly. You know, if we're really truly all the way to electric, someone has to be working on a solution to sort of democratize access to charging. Welcome to Bite Size, a series where we highlight innovation across transport, mobility, and smart cities, and meet the people that are making it happen. My name is Emily Bobbis. I'm a road intelligence startup founder, and my goal is to combat the stigma that transport is uncool, uninteresting, and uninspired. Tia, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast today. My pleasure. I'm glad to be here. It's a pleasure. Um, I've been looking forward to this episode. I've actually talked to a couple of people about it uh, before we've even recorded it. Uh, but I was I was hoping you could start off by telling the listeners a little bit about your background uh, and what you're passionate about. Um, so my name is Tia Gordon, and I am the co-founder of It's Electric. My background is kind of an interesting one in regards to where I'm working now in terms of transportation and energy. What I'm passionate about is 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 good design. I feel like good design elevates the most mundane tasks and it makes our lives a lot better, even just thinking about the basic interactions you have on a daily basis with your phone, where the ease at which you can call an Uber on your phone or order food, um, you know, it, design really makes a difference in making your life a lot less complicated. And so that's really where my, where my passion is, is, is how to use design, but then taking all the experience that I had and trying to think about how can we map the power of design towards uh, helping to fight the climate crisis. So you've actually got a uh, your own company that kind of addresses these two issues. Uh, so are you able to tell us the story about It's Electric uh, and the problem that it's aiming to solve? Sure thing. So I'm reaching you today from Brooklyn, New York, uh, where I live in an apartment uh, on the ground floor of an old building that's over 120 years old and I don't have a garage or a driveway and I also don't have a car. Um, I bike everywhere. During the pandemic uh, in March of 2020, I really couldn't rely on my bike or on public transportation because there is so much uh, unknown fear around the transmission of the virus. Uh, At the time, I had a very young daughter. Um, So like a lot of people, I started exploring what it would mean to get a car to get us around more safely, even for things like, uh, you know, uh, taking just trips to get some fresh air out of the city because we were all in quarantine. And I, you know, I had not previously considered a car uh, in terms of just who I was and the way the needs of transition that I had. But when I had to start to think about it, since, you know, I'm very environmentally conscious, I recycle and I compost. So I said, well, I should look at an electric vehicle because why would I get a, a internal combustion engine that relies on fossil fuels? 
But I quickly had to rule that out, A, because obviously I couldn't afford a Tesla, um, but there are other lower income or lower lower economy model vehicles that you can you can afford, especially used in terms of uh, hybrid vehicles, uh, bolts, Priuses, things like that. But it really quickly came to bear that I couldn't get any of these electric vehicles because I literally had no place to charge it. Uh, there is no vehicle charging in my city, in New York City, in, in 2020 at least, that wasn't immediately accessible for me. The way you could charge a vehicle was that you would rent a spot in a private garage or in a private parking lot, which was a premium. So you would pay, you know, I'm not joking, around $800 a month for that spot. Ooh. And then you'd have to pay for the premium of parking in the spot that had the EV charger. And then you have to pay for the energy of that charger on top of everything else. Oh my God. So I was like, wow, that's a wealth barrier, right? Only the wealthy are going to drive electric vehicles. Only the wealthy would have the spare capital to engage in a routine like that. Well, this is silly. You know, if we're really truly all the way to electric, someone has to be working on a solution to sort of democratize access to charging. And when I discovered that no one was for cities, they were, there's plenty of ways to charge your vehicle in the suburbs, which basically just put a charger in your garage, but no one was doing that for cities. So that's how Ace Electric was born, was trying to solve a problem for myself and for the 40 million other people who live in cities across the U.S. You've mentioned something in there that's come up quite a few times with different people that I've talked to around electric vehicle charging, and that is uh, that wealth aspect or that equity of, of access. Uh, are you able to unpack that a little bit and how that then relates back to uh, its electric and electric car charging infrastructure? Absolutely. Um, you know, right now in the United States, the chargers that are being deployed publicly are strategically being deployed by the, the by the charger manufacturers in areas where they will see a decent utilization because the costs that they bear for the production and deployment of these chargers are so great that they have to make some money on it. Otherwise, it's it's not that you know it's not a good business model for them. But what this means is the public chargers that are going up in the world are going up in areas that have higher median incomes. And also there was a great piece in Axios uh, News in January of this year that discovered, even though we had all suspected it, but it did the research to confirm that there were far more chargers to the tune of two and a half time more chargers in census areas that were majority white than areas that were not. So equity becomes the headline. So we then started to ask ourselves this question, how can we deploy chargers without discrimination? Because there is discriminatory practice happening when you're deploying all the in areas where there's high utilization, which is tied to median income, which can also be tied to, you know, basically class. So for us, the solution for that was to design a charger that didn't cost you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars to produce and to install, which is currently often the case in some areas of the states, use the way that the chargers are designed and how they're powered. So we designed a really simple charger um, that could be uh, fabricated and installed for a fraction of what the other chargers out there in the United States uh, require. And now we can truly then deploy these areas, not only 
where there's very high utilization, where you have five Teslas on every block, where people are taking their cars away to get away for the weekend. But we can also deploy those very same chargers in neighborhoods where there's literally no electric vehicle adoption because you want to be able to signal to communities that there's charging near where people live. No one's going to make the adoption of an electric vehicle if they literally have no idea where to charge or if they have to spend hours researching it. Why would they make that conversion? The country and the world honestly has to make the move to electrification as easy for people as possible. And that's what we're helping to do. It's, it's almost like a, a catch-22 as well where you have people are like, oh, well, we're only going to put charges where there are people that own electric vehicles, but then you're kind of then compounding the problem of, well, if the people who are in those areas with no charges don't have electric vehicles, why? what's the incentive for them to, to do that if there's then no charges? It's like the, which comes first, the, the charger or the EV? Kind of. <laughs> we, and we like to say it's not chicken or egg. It, it's all egg. No one then again, EV, if they don't know where to charge, it's like, it's like, you know, back in the day when people were reverse driving gas vehicles in this country, people would buy gas from um, pharmacies. That's where they would sell it, which was a fun fact that I discovered that I never knew. There were, there were, you know, gas or petrol stations when things first started. So people would have to go into a pharmacy to buy gasoline and then put it into their vehicles. So, you know, it's a new industry and we're undergoing this sort of once in a lifetime energy transformation. And so we should be aware of history and aware of how we design this so that we lead with equity. In terms of um, even your own journey in, in starting It's Electric, what are some of the challenges that you faced? Uh, one of the things that I always like to tout about uh, startups and innovation is that innovation doesn't equal acceptance uh, and that's like a really big part but is there anything that you've kind of encountered personally oh yeah I would um, highlight two different aspects the first thing that I would highlight is um, I, I'll work backwards um, we're about a year and a half old now and in the last Four months, so since January, February, March, April, yeah. So last four months of this year, we've gotten a lot of really positive attention. We've won a lot of awards. All of this has been fantastic. It's really validating. And when we started again a year and a half ago, people were so skeptical. And so, you know, we would often get that response all the time. We'd say, well, if it's that easy, then how come a big company like a charge point or actually America hasn't didn't do this five years ago? And you know, the answer was that you know they weren't thinking about the problem. They were thinking about the solution that was most mappable to what we previously relied upon here in the United States in terms of how we feel like vehicles, which was you went to a centralized area, which is gas station. You had a short interaction period where you were able to very quickly put fuel in your car, which was a noxious, you know, toxic chemical. Um, and then you drive away. But electricity is an entirely different animal. And it's far more equivalent to coming home at the end of a long day and plugging your phone in than it is to the transfer of, of gasoline. The model that we're just going to convert what we were using before and switch gas for electricity 
didn't make any sense. That was the biggest challenge was that, you know, I, 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 you know, please, if I had a time machine and I could go ahead in time and say, here's the seven articles that were just written on us. Here's the three awards that we just want. Like we need you to have the ability to imagine a future with us. Um, and I also, so this is my segue to my second challenge. I think that they could have imagined that future with us if I fit the standard profile of a founder, a woman in her forties in New York city, who's, who's a, who's a, who's a mom. Um, I'm not a 20 year old white male Stanford grad. Had I had a different optical profile. I wouldn't have gotten so many no's when I first started it. I um, was actually talking to somebody uh, the other day, actually, about how, because um, I think a common question that you get once you've kind of started a little bit of a, a business or a startup is like, oh, um, like, what made you want to be a, a founder or something? And, you know, how did you come up with your startup idea? And I feel like often a lot of people are put off because they're like, oh, well, I could never do something like that. And, and part of that is the narrative that is pushed in media of what what a founder looks like and the kind of characteristics that they have, uh, which then I think discourages a, a lot of innovation from happening because you never, you know, you don't, you can't be what you can't see. Yeah, I do. I mean, and even, even as recent as yesterday, like you're constantly being fed what the character description and the character quality of a founder is and should be. And it's someone who's, pretty like uh insatiable right mm. like like relentless and those are definitely attributes which i can easily apply to myself but not in a pejorative way like you can be relentless but you don't have to be a terrible person so what ended up happening was that we had to take a longer trip to find the people that would believe in us that would invest in us to give us just the, even the early capital. And in that journey of finding those people, it was almost in many ways worth the wait because we didn't get the fast and easy checks. We got the harder earned checks from the people that truly believe and have conviction in what we're doing. Yeah, I think that's that's an interesting and like it's, it's often not a perspective that is uh, widely publicized. Um, but you were also uh, part of a, a program. So there's a program. I'll do, I'll do a little bit of a, an overview for listeners. But um, you were part of a, a program called Empowerism, which is run by a mobility agency called Move Me out of Canada. Uh, it's basically about getting women in shared mobility platforms and uh, celebrated, I guess, more in the public eye. Uh, and you were part of that program. So why was the program valuable? How was the program valuable to you? And what was your experience like? Absolutely. So it was, you know, uh, this was uh, late last year that I was nominated uh, as a finalist for this competition for women in mobility. And I was definitely sort of not the, everyone else was definitely coming from a perspective of public transport and micro mobility. I was definitely the only sort of rideshare or private transport component of it, but I was so grateful to be involved because where else do you see competitions that highlight women in transportation um, and innovation? And I, what I like to say about Move Me is that it was like the happiest, I didn't win, sorry, spoiler, I didn't win. 
Um, and it was the happiest loss, the most gracious loss I've ever had in my life. Cause I'm competitive. I'm, I'm super competitive, but I was like, no, like all of these people need to win. And I'm totally okay losing to everyone here. I almost wanted to withdraw my nomination because I was so excited by what the other candidates were doing. Um, this one company who did win, we, uh, with the exclamation point at the end, uh, was shared cargo biking for cities because the number one uh, pivot that pushes uh, individuals and, and, and partners into vehicle ownership is when they start families. So I, so immediately when, when we won, like my first response was, oh God, please come to Brooklyn. Like, please, <laughs> we need this. We need this so badly. Um, so I have the most incredible experience with Move Me. Um, Sandra and Nikitesh, who run the program, were nothing but champions for every single person that was involved. Um, and it was just really nothing but a pleasure. And even though I have never met them in person, like we're now, you know, I guess what you call it is social media friends. Uh, <laughs> And we, 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 we cheer each other on as, as, there's, as there's wins on both sides. So I'm so thrilled to be even a, a small adjacent part of that community. Um, and it's such an exciting community. It's so great. It's like, I don't know, transportation is, is something. I was just talking to someone today. We were interviewing this woman for a job uh, at its electric, and she really impressed me because um, she said that the bar for transportation is so high. When the subway breaks down and it doesn't work, then you're just, you're raked across the coals, right? Mm. But every other day when it works flawlessly, that's just what's expected. Um, so, you know, we all just kind of go about our days and we take the fact that their traffic lights are working and that our roads are paved <laughs> and that we can hop on the subway and that there's a city bike system. And you know what I mean? Like, and then when that doesn't happen, when I go to the city bike rack and there's no bikes, I, you know, I'm the one who's cursing out loud because I have to now walk like, five extra blocks to go to the next rack. Um, so, you know, I think that this whole new attention that's being paid to transportation in the wake of electrification is helping us truly understand and appreciate all of the women and men that are like working in transportation and have been, you know, to move us, to put us where we need to be. It's such a cool uh, group of people. And I'm so lucky to be involved, even again, from a small perspective of what we're doing for EV, trans uh, EV infrastructure. Uh, with it. So normally I like to ask people uh, what's a question you wish people would ask you more and then we kind of flipped it and it was that there was a question that people asked you all the time that you wished they'd asked you less. Uh, so what is one question that you wish people would ask you less and, and why? The question I hate the most um, is what keeps me up at night and the reason that I don't like that question is because it implies that there's problems that are so great that work can't work and reasoning and partnerships and all the things that you do to do your job can't solve. I'm solving a very solvable problem. Um, and so when people ask me this question, I, I just think it's, it's silly because my answer to them is that nothing keeps me up at night because I literally, I, I, I have a very weird routine that was born out of the pandemic and we were all balancing uh, full-time work and homeschooling of our kids when schools were closed. So I have this, now this, I'll call it lovely new habit where I wake up at 4 a.m. Uh, and I work for about three and a half hours until my daughter wakes up uh, around 7.30. And um, I then get her dressed and get her fed and get her to school. And then I go ahead and I do a whole work day 
And then I pick her up for school and I get her home. Then we do um, dinner and, and shower and everything and more homework and whatever else we have to do. And then I catch up on some more emails after that. And then by the time it's time for her to go to bed around, you know, nine o'clock PM Eastern, I am also ready to go to bed. <laughs> I am so tired that I can't keep my eyes open because I've literally just put in, you know, often a 16 hour day. Um, so no, nothing, nothing keeps me awake at night. Oh, so out of, out of everything we've, we've chatted about today, um, if people weren't listening, say for, for the last kind of 27 minutes, what are the, the key takeaways that you'd want the listeners to have or like that one lesson that you'd hope people would take out of this episode? Oh, okay. Um, lessons to take out of this episode. Um, number one is find solutions, um, that can help improve the lives of your community. And if you can do that in a way that is viable, like can even become a business, like pursue it. Like this is how good ideas are born. It's from the imaginations of people that are living those own their those those own pain points themselves and can understand it from that perspective and then can make changes to improve it for everybody else, not just themselves. And if people wanted to connect with you and, and learn more, uh, how could they how could they do that? Oh, um, I'm very active on LinkedIn. Um, so please definitely uh, follow It's Electric on LinkedIn. I'm sure you'll be able to put that in the show notes in terms of the link to our page. Yes. Oh, great. Um, uh, I I love having conversations and reposting. It's LinkedIn is sort of like great because it's social media, but it's all professional. So I don't have to like post about my life. I just post about my work. <laughs> um, so it's much easier for me as a introvert to do that. Um, so yeah, that's definitely the way you can get involved. Also, the way that you can get involved is that we have a wait list at our website. It's electric.us. You go to get involved. There's a wait list. If you are EV driver, more importantly, if you are an aspiring EV driver, more importantly, if you have a building in any city, I don't care what kind of building it is, if it's a house, if it's an apartment building, if it's a store, and you want to put an electric vehicle charger in front of it, a very small, very cool, very well-designed electric vehicle charger in front of it that then earns you revenue, please sign up for a wait list. It's so exciting to see where we get interest from across the globe. And then what we do is we search it heat map all of that to try and understand where the desire is greatest and where we can start to look to deploy pilots. Well, Tia, thank you so much for your time today. Super interesting conversation and also very topical given that I feel in the last even three to six months, the amount of conversations happening around EV and EV infrastructure has just kind of exploded. So it's super cool to to chat about this and, and the future basically of what's happening. Likewise, I really enjoyed the conversation. Uh, Thank you so much for interviewing me. This was a lot of fun. If you'd like to learn more about any of the guests that we have on the podcast, more about BiteSize or more about Compass IoT, the company that produces this podcast, you can visit our website, which is www.compassiot.com.au. Until next time.